My kids love their snacks just like everyone else, but I'm really picky about what they eat. And if it's going to be something in a package, I want it to be healthy, high quality, and something that's not going to break the bank. I recently discovered Thrive Market and they check all the boxes. My kids are loving the seaweed snacks, cinnamon applesauce, and the skinny dip dark chocolate almonds. What I love most about Thrive Market is that everything is organic and non-GMO, and it's more affordable than what you'll find in the stores. If you join today, you can get 25% off your first order and a free gift. All you have to do is go to thrivemarket.com slash food issues. And for every paid membership, they give a free membership to a low-income family. So sign up today at thrivemarket.com slash food issues. This is Food Issues. In every episode, we bring you experts to tackle the real challenges around feeding kids and offer practical insight to help organizations, communities, and parents create change. I'm your host, Julie Revelon. This week on the show, we're talking about companies that spend nearly $2 billion a year marketing unhealthy foods and drinks to kids and all the sneaky ways kids are being targeted, even on their virtual learning platforms. There are some degrees of protection about advertising unhealthy foods and drinks at school, like physically on a school campus. But those regulations do not apply to these online learning platforms. So kids now can be surrounded by, by unhealthy food marketing on a platform that seems to be kind of endorsed by their own school, which makes it all the more powerful. That's Bettina Elias Siegel, a nationally recognized writer and advocate on issues relating to children and food policy and author of the book, Kid Food, The Challenge of Feeding Children in a Highly Processed World. We'll talk about how to navigate these insidious marketing tactics, be a critical consumer, and what you can do to advocate for change. Well, Bettina, it's so good to welcome you to the Food Issues Podcast. It is such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Great. Well, let's start today by first talking about the history of food marketing and advertising in the U.S., which, you know, I read your book and it's really complicated, right? There's a lot of issues here. So where have we been and where are we now? Well, so if you go back to kind of the earliest food marketing, um, there was no, um, there, no one was ever marketing directly to children, you know, in, in, in the early days of advertising, because of course it was adults who made purchasing decisions. And, you know, in the old days, kids were like, you know, seen and not heard. So it would just be a waste of money to advertise directly to children. But that started to change. I think it was at the turn of the last century and uh, late 19th century when they started having magazines directed you know, specifically to children, things like Boy's Life and Youth's Companion and things like that. And and even then, it took advertisers a while to kind of figure out, we can advertise to kids and that will in turn cause them to nudge their parents to buy it, uh, you know, our product, what, what we now call pester power. Um, so actually in my book, I have these quotes that come from a, a, a historian that are almost hilarious. You know, advertisers sort of, it's slowly dawning on them kind of the power that they have in marketing directly to children. And so, you know, once we have radio and then of course television, then advertisers are much more aggressively advertising to kids. And they're also starting to use the really powerful technique of, you know, connecting their product with a celebrity, a character, um, and, and of course, you know, a mascot. And of course, that's very powerful. 
And now, you know, in modern times, um, we don't have the most current data, but the last time that the food and beverage industries were, were subpoenaed by the federal government for the information, they disclosed that they were collectively spending um, almost $2 billion a year just to market foods and beverages to children, and $2 billion. And that wow. has, you know, completely separate from their massive advertising budgets directed toward the rest of us. So it is a, a huge business to market foods and drinks to children. Wow. Okay. That's a lot. Um, so why are they, you talked about the pester power. Can you talk a little bit more about why these companies are really determined to target kids and teens and, and even the littlest of kids, right? Yes. Yes. It's incredible. So there are really like, I, I would say maybe three broad reasons why they are spending almost two billion a year to reach children because it, you know, even even today, it still seems odd. I think at first glance, like why spend so much money on reaching tiny children and and even you know older children? So I think one reason is kids. It turns out actually do have a lot of their own disposable income or or, or spending power. I guess you should say um, that they can spend on food and drinks. And I tried to kind of peg that number in in my book, Kid Food. It was really hard. There, I've seen wildly different estimates, but it's, we can safely say it's in the billions, which is insane. Um, and then, you know, um, kids also are impressionable and they are forming brand preferences very early on. I mean, I think a lot of people are already familiar with these findings that well before children can read, they can recognize, you know, corporate mascots and, and, and brand logos. So that's another big reason. It's like, get them while they're young and you'll lock in the brand preference. But then, you know, going back to what we were just talking about, there's this phenomenon of pester power and it's incredibly powerful. Um, children see products in the store when they're with their parents or, or in marketing. They want it, they nag, and, and eventually parents cave. And again, these figures are so wildly disparate, it's hard to peg. But one figure that I have in the book is that kids influence something like $500 billion in, you know, in spending, household spending generally, you know, that's not just food and drinks. But um, so, so really, I think those are the three main reasons why marketers really are focused on our children. Yeah, absolutely. I know when I, you know, I try not to always take my kids food shopping with me, but (laughs) especially now during COVID, but when I do take them, they will always gravitate towards those, you know, recognizable cartoon characters on, especially on yogurt, they want that. And I try to explain to them that that's exactly why they're putting that there because they want you to spend money. They want to hook you in, right? And and also many times those products are high sugar and so they taste really good and they want you to buy more of it and get hooked on it. Um, so it, it kind of, you know, they, they look at me and scratch their heads, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, obviously I talk to them about nutrition and, and making choices and not just because we see uh, something that we recognize or looks appealing to us. That's so great that you're doing that because you're giving them that kind of early literacy um, and that kind of early inoculation against this marketing. Although I'm sure, as you probably attest, even with that knowledge, it's still powerful. It still has a grip on them. But it's good for kids to at least be given an understanding of what's going on. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it has a grip on us too, right? We have our own brand preferences. We see something that looks quote unquote healthy and and we have an affinity towards that brand and, and continue to buy it. Whether it is or it isn't, absolutely. I mean, I have a whole chapter on the book called in the book called um, "The Claim Game," which is all about 
health halo marketing, you know, ways in which products are marketed as healthier than they actually are. And that draws us in. And of course, you know, we, we think about kids with cartoon characters on their cereal, but you know, we're also influenced by, you know, influencers, people on Instagram, celebrities, you know, um, you know, who are very subtly often marketing stuff to us. And, and of course we adults get sucked in too, no question about it. Right. Absolutely. So what's problematic about today's food marketing to kids and in what sneaky ways are kids being targeted? Because they're being targeted basically everywhere they go, right? Absolutely. So stepping back, even if we were just talking about the most kind of mundane and and, um, obvious advertising, like, you know, a Saturday morning cartoon television commercial, you know, even if we're just looking at that sort of thing, advertising to children is arguably unethical. And, 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 you know, that's not just me saying that. I mean, the American Academy of Pediatrics has actually said kids should not, you know, under age eight should not be marketed to. And the reason for that is kids' brains are still developing. And so for children, you know, truly the littlest children, like under age four or five, they, they cannot even distinguish between advertising and the content that they're watching. So they're just sitting there like little sitting ducks and think that the ad is just part of the show. So that's like the ultimate kind of predatory marketing because they just have no filter whatsoever. And then between age, say four, five and eight, they, they, they might understand that like, this is the commercial and the rest is my show, but they still don't get that they're being marketed to. So they have no cognitive defenses against it. And so that's why the American Academy of Pediatrics and, and, you know, every, you know, health advocate would say marketing to kids under eight truly is unethical. But even older kids, the data show that, you know, they they might get that they're being advertised to, but they don't, they still don't understand that maybe the advertiser doesn't have their best interest in mind, that maybe they're being persuaded to do something that that is not actually, you know, to their benefit. So, and, and then I would say even teenagers, of course, they get advertising and they think they're so cynical and, 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 and kind of above it. But when advertising is, is more subtle, they too can get very sucked in and, and be completely persuaded by it. And so that kind of brings me to what you're talking about, which is we're not just talking anymore about very overt commercials on television, although that still exists. Kids are being marketed to today through so many different platforms, and some of these these uh, platforms are are or some of these techniques are quite insidious because they're so subtle. So you know they slip marketing into the video game that your kid is playing. My son was playing some NBA basketball game, and there are the players having Gatorade and Reese's cereal. You know, yeah, um, you know through sponsorships from athletes through toys that are branded, you know, um, product placements in movies that they don't even notice, but of course they're, they're imbibing it. So, you know, again, this is true for all of us, but certainly for our children, I, it has seeped into truly every aspect of their daily lives. Right. Right. And so has anything changed about the marketer's strategy and tactics during COVID-19? Because of course there have been many changes with uh, supply chain dis- disruption and, um, you know, several issues around food, food insecurity, anything like that? Well, you know, one thing that I think is really interesting that just kind of got on my radar is, and this is so insidious, 
is that, of course, all of our kids now are learning online. So Mm. these advertisers have moved to online learning platforms, remote learning platforms. And what's really troubling about this, and, and, you know, we can talk about this more later, but there are some degrees of protection about advertising unhealthy foods and drinks at school, like physically on a school campus. But those regulations do not apply to these online learning platforms. So kids now can be surrounded by, by unhealthy food marketing on a platform that seems to be kind of endorsed by their own school, which makes it all the more powerful. So I was just reading a study where they're finding ads for, you know, Lunchables and Happy Meals and Frosted Flakes. And, and it's, it's really, really troubling that, that, you know, advertisers are essentially capitalizing on the pandemic to reach kids in ways that they couldn't before. So are these through apps? I'm not even aware of this. Maybe I should be. <laughs> you know, so I, my kids are in college now. So, so the, I too have not seen these learning platforms, but, um, you know, I think it's, it's like educational game websites and things like that, where they're being sent by their teacher. And then there are the ads in the periphery and, um, it's really troubling. And, and I know that, um, some advocacy groups have formed a coalition and approached the USDA to ask for regulation of this. But I think, I, to be honest, I don't think anything like that's going to happen anytime soon. Wow. Wow. That's really concerning, especially because kids are home on distance learning on these devices so many hours throughout the day. And they're, you know, studies are showing they're less physically active and, yes. and experts are worried about childhood obesity. Absolutely. It's really troubling. And again, you know, I think when we see these ads in the periphery, they can be even more um, effective because we kind of absorb them without, without even like conscious thought. And again, anything going on related to your school, unfortunately conveys to kids in an implicit way, my school approves of this, you know, and that, that adds another layer of sort of persuasiveness to the extent kids think about it. Right. Right. And it's like subconscious. They're not even processing it. Wow. Okay. So one of the things that I found really interesting in your book, Kid Food, is food marketing in the cafeteria in schools. Um, you, you know, I've spoken about this in a previous podcast episode, but a group of moms and I um, have formed a nutrition committee and and we advocated for improved school lunch and the district to get rid of what they call snack, which are competitive foods, um, yeah. which are big money makers, as you know. Um, but I was not aware until I read your book that they that these companies can actually market to kids. So can you talk about all the different ways that that they're allowed to do this and are there rules around it? Right. So in the in the old days, you know, before the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, which is the Obama era school food legislation that passed in 2010, before that, it was really kind of a free-for-all as to what foods could be advertised in the cafeteria, sold, sold in the cafeteria and then also advertised. So and I and we're talking about the cafeteria, but this really applies to school grounds and right. you know, across the board. You know, so there could be, you know, Coke vending machines in the hallway. And I remember posters for all kinds of junk food in my kids' cafeteria for stuff that was being sold there. So we've definitely seen an improvement. And 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 the mechanism isn't direct legislation. It's not like the federal government has said to schools, you know, you can advertise this and not that. What they've said is all school districts that participate in a federal school meal program, you know, breakfast or lunch, have to have a a local school wellness policy on file. Mm -hmm. And the wellness policy has to direct schools not to advertise in the cafeteria, or I think actually on the whole campus, 
um, foods and drinks that don't comply with the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act nutrition standards for competitive food, which are called the Smart Snacks rules. So to put that, to give, give an example, um, you know, as you probably know, kids can still buy foods like Cheetos and, and you know, Pop-Tarts and things like that at school, but they've been reformulated to meet the Smart Snacks standards. So the problem is, so yes, that's going to rule out maybe the worst junk food advertising on a school campus. But unfortunately, it still is going to allow the marketing of brands that are very associated with unhealthy foods. So they can put up a big poster saying, hey, kids, you know, buy these, you know, Fruit Loops for schools or, you know, these Cheetos that, you know, that are made for schools. But it's still Chester the Cheetah. It's still the Cheetos name. It's still all the same colors and logos. And so you're still giving kids a message, again, coming from their school, their, this authority, that these foods are fine, you know? And so that's the kind of loophole or weakness of this attempt to rein in junk food advertising. And so the other question is, you know, what even constitutes marketing? That's really up to each district to define in its wellness policy. So in other words, you know, we know that marketing includes things like signage and stuff like that, but what about things like the box tops program or reading coupons that are sponsored by, you know, your local McDonald's or things like that? That has to be defined by each district in its wellness policy. And and to be honest with you, I think most districts are not even thinking about that issue and, and you know, keeping that question open. So those are the sort of strengths and weaknesses of the ways in which the new wellness policy rules are attempting to curb junk food marketing on campus. And so why do the schools allow it? Do they make money from this marketing? Well, I mean, you know, as you know, from your experience trying to kind of change things in your cafeteria, districts feel that they need to be selling a la carte snacks and other foods to shore up the revenue of their meal program. And so, you know, if that's the case, then obviously having signage and other marketing bolsters those sales. So I think that's the motivation. Wow. Yeah. There's a database of uh, smart snacks as you mentioned. And I remember looking through it and just not seeing anything that looked healthy at all to me. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, that's the problem. It's very, you know, certainly there are things that can be sold a la carte that are really healthy, you know, of course, but, but, you know, what hooks kids attention and, and their taste buds are these branded, highly processed foods that have been just tweaked enough to meet the smart snacks rules. And, and of course, that's what many schools are going to go with. So it's just, you know, it's the Fruit Loops and the, and the Cheetos and the Doritos and all that stuff. And it, it ticks all the boxes nutritionally. But, you know, in the end, is it healthy? It's really hard to call that food healthy. Right. Yeah. And now during COVID, I think a lot of the schools aren't really selling those competitive foods because of the way that their, their programs are structured. Right. I mean, obviously, kids are not on campus right now, and it's a whole different thing going on right now, for sure, with school meals. Yeah. Okay. All right. Great. So let's talk more about YouTube. There was a recent study out in November in the journal Pediatrics about kid influencers, which are defined as kids ages 2 to 14, whose parents shoot videos of them playing with toys and eating food and living normal family life, uh, although very much produced. Um, and so according to the study, they, they, they found that the highest paid YouTube influencer in 2018 and 2019, for example, was in 
eight-year-old who <laughs> earned $26 million from advertisements that appeared before the video and sponsored posts. So companies are paying that family to uh, to feature their products. And um, I, I've definitely seen this with my own kids. I was telling friends last night that my kids will find these silly, really ridiculous YouTube videos. And there's one of a mom who puts together school lunch boxes. And so I'd love for them to watch that if she was inspiring them to put together healthy school lunch boxes. <laughs> right. But most of the time it's all processed food and it's from these companies that are likely paying her to feature their brands. Um, yes. So what's particularly concerning about this research? Well, it, it is incredibly worrisome. And I'm not sure if, if the study you're citing is the same one that I saw. I think it might be. But what I saw was they looked at the five top kid influencers, I think including the, the one you just talked about who's yeah. making this insane amount of money. Yeah. They looked at all of their videos. I think over half of them advertised some kind of food or drink. 90% of those foods and drinks were unhealthy. Um, and it included things like McDonald's and Skittles and Oreos and Coke and stuff like that. And, and there's so many reasons why this is of concern. For one, it's my understanding that because it's on YouTube, it, 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 it's, it's not, I think it falls outside of, you know, we can talk about this in a bit, but this like voluntary self-regulatory program that advertisers agree to participate in. So it's a huge loophole opening for them. The, the other thing is very little kids love these YouTube videos, like these unboxing videos and stuff. So you're really reaching, you know, incredibly impressionable little viewers. And also these influencers really have like a celebrity status among these kids. So they are incredibly persuasive to them. The same way that putting a beloved cartoon character on, on something, you know, draws kids in. They are equally drawn in, if not more, by these, these influencer celebrities. And the other thing is these videos tend to last a while. So instead of getting like a 30-second message or a 60-second message, you might be watching minutes long of this marketing for an unhealthy food and drink. So it, it's like disturbing on so many levels. And I think that study was great because it got a ton of attention. And hopefully we'll see more regulation in that area. That's a good point. I never thought of that, that the length of the videos. And then there's also that affinity again towards these YouTube influencers or mini influencers. And then, you know, you go back to that same channel and YouTube curates your preferences like exactly. Netflix, right? And then maybe you follow them on other social media channels and you're con you're getting hit by by every, you know, every aspect, no matter where you go, you, you can find these people. Absolutely. I hadn't even thought about that aspect of it, but that's so important. The way YouTube's algorithms, you know, once they see that you're watching this, it's going to feed you more and more of that over to the side recommended. And so it just is like this feedback loop that is so terrible. It's so destructive in terms of forming these, you know, interest in and, you know, allegiance to products that are really unhealthy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, great, Bettina. So with that, we're going to take a break. As a busy working mom of two trying to get dinner on the table every night, I had thought about meal planning, but it always seemed way too time consuming and difficult. Yet a few months ago, I discovered the Dinner Daily and it made getting a healthy and delicious dinner on the table so much easier. The Dinner Daily isn't a meal kit, but a personalized dinner planning service that sends you meal plans and an organized grocery shopping list built around your food preferences, 
dietary needs, and family size. And it's the only service that uses your grocery store's weekly specials to help you save money, up to $1,200 a year or more. The Dinner Daily is available for 16,000 grocery stores across the country, and they offer one-click ordering at Kroger stores nationwide and select stop-and-shop stores. Whether you're gluten-free, vegetarian, or have picky eaters, I know you'll love the recipes. My kids are fans of their taco salad and tomato and mozzarella fish. The Dinner Daily not only saves you money on your grocery bill, but new members get two weeks free. And right now, you can try it for 15% off with the code HEALTH15. Just go to thedinnerdaily.com and use code HEALTH15. And now let's get back to this week's episode of Food Issues. So in our last segment, we were talking about YouTube influencers and how they're making a ton of money. Even little kids are making millions of dollars every year from food ads and product placement. And so in general for food marketing and advertising, is there oversight? So this is this is a you know topic that's really of interest to me. So there have been these attempts, <laughs> flailing attempts, <laughs> by the federal government to rein in the advertising of unhealthy foods and drinks to kids. There was an effort in the 70s, which was actually motivated by sugar and dental cavities, um, which is not so much on our radar anymore, but, you know, like super sugary cereal, and there was this rise in dental cavities. And so they, they, they had an effort that's become known as KidVid, like kid video, to, to rein in that, that advertising absolutely crashed and burned under food and beverage and other industry um, lobbying. Then under the, in, in the Obama administration, um, there was a second effort. This time around, they just tried to formulate voluntary guidelines for food and beverage companies. Even though they were voluntary, once again, these industries went on high alert, huge amount of lobbying, crashed and burned. So what the industry has done instead is formed, this was in 2007, they formed it, they, they, they have formed a self-regulatory body where they say, we promise to be good actors and here's our pledge. And, you know, pretty much every major food and beverage company out there is, is a member of this initiative. It's called the Children's Food and Beverage Advertising Init- Initiative or the CFBAI. And if you read what they're doing on paper, it sounds great. It's like, you know, we pledge only to market healthy dietary choices. If we're going to be marketing to kids under 12, we won't use characters on unhealthy food. We're going to stay out of schools. It all looks great. But then when you actually look at the program, it's so riddled with loopholes that it lets them accomplish pretty much, you know, what they want to be doing. So just to give, you know, listeners, you know, some perspective on this, I mentioned they'll only market healthy dietary choices to little kids. Well, Things like Lucky Charms, you know, pepperoni, Lunchables, Fruit Loops, baked Cheetos, Kool-Aid, all of that qualifies as a healthier dietary choice. So I would say that's the key loophole, which is that they've just created nutrition standards that allow most of their stuff to still pass muster. Um, you know, I will say these nutrition standards have gotten strengthened over the years from pressure from advocates. So it's not as bad as it used to be, but it's still, as those foods you know indicate, it's still a pretty weak standard. And then there are other kind of technical loopholes about what constitutes marketing to kids, you know, what media channels qualify. 
you know, they're just, they're just weaknesses that allow them to, to do what they want to do. And, and that makes sense because ultimately these are for-profit companies. Their main interest is, is, you know, shareholder accountability. It's not the health of your children. And so there's only so far a program like that can go. And unless we actually have regulation, it's, I don't think it's going to get much better than it is right now. Right. It's the same thing with school lunch. I, I, come from the perspective of no one's really caring about what your kids are eating at schools. There are some companies that that do that that are providing healthy school lunch, but for the most part, it's all profit driven. Yes. Yes. Okay. I mean, you know, that's just kind of the name of the game. Yeah. And so one of the other things I wanted to ask you about in your book, you talk about some uh, industry uh, organizations and and I I won't name them, but there were some that I thought, wow, they do research on um, healthy, you know, food trends and healthy eating. And yet they're getting funding from um, uh, companies that, that have a, that ha- how would you say it, Bettina, if you know what I'm talking yes. about? <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand. So these are what they call front groups. And it's a way for the processed food and sugary beverage industry to get their message out, get their talking points out, defend themselves against research that's, you know, unhelpful to their bottom line, but without having their fingerprints on it. So there are these groups that have these very benign sounding names, scientific-y sounding names. But if you can find out who's funding them, it's, it's you know, it's the, the big players in the processed food and sugary beverage industries. And so that is one technique they have of influencing our, our thoughts about, our, our, our knowledge about nutrition, you know, the the quality of foods and drinks, they are part of the messaging, but we don't know it because they're not revealing themselves. It's a really kind of smart, but insidious um, marketing technique. And so how does a parent look into that and see how, where, where they're getting their funding from? Well, so I, you know, I do name names in my book. Right. Um, yes. And so, you know, they can they can read about it and huh? and I rely on other advocates who did do the digging and have published reports to let us know like here's who's really behind this. Okay. Um and you know, there are other things too like like companies will form their own like research institutes and and there they're they're disclosing they're behind it, but it's still you know, it's still got the same purpose of trying to insert themselves in debates about nutrition in ways that are very self-serving. So like Coca-Cola for a while had this, I'm forgetting the exact name of it, but it was like the Balance Energy Institute or something like that, where the (laughs) whole point of it was to have research and expert voices in the media talking about exercise, the importance of exercise and burning off calories, because they're very desperately trying to distract us from the fact that like it takes an hour to, you know, burn off the <laughs> calories in a Coke. They don't really want you to think of it that way. Yeah. And so, um, you know, and then once that was kind of talked about in the media, they shut the whole thing down. But, you know, they, they just ha- there are all kinds of ways that they're working behind the scenes to kind of further confuse the public so that we kind of just throw up our hands and say, oh, well, you know, everything's fine. I'll have it in moderation, you know, and they don't, they don't want us to be critical thinkers about what they're selling. Right, right. Yeah. And there's, there's many cereal brands that will conduct surveys about the importance of eating breakfast. Meanwhile, many of their products are high sugar cereals that you don't really want your kids eating for breakfast. Exactly. And another, you know, really um, important thing that I think a lot of parents don't even, don't know about is just the degree to which, I mean, you mentioned surveys, but, you know, the degree to which companies 
fund their own nutrition research about their products, which is, you know, on paper, that should be okay. But, you know, these meta studies have shown that these studies almost always invariably come out the way they want them to, to support a marketing claim. So, you know, it'll be like, you know, Welch's will, will study grape juice and then tell you that, you know, the antioxidants in grape juice support cognitive health, you know, and, and, and that would be fine, except sometimes when researchers who have no stake in it do the same study, they don't find the same conclusion. Right. And, and, the, and the real reason why that's troubling is then that research is used to make marketing claims that then give these products an undeserved health halo. And then that in turn influences us in the supermarket. We pick it up and say, oh, you know, the, 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 you know, whatever in this gives me this health benefit, I'll buy it. But we don't realize that that's kind of bought and paid for research. Absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, I, years ago I was writing for Fox news and I wrote a story about juice and I, and I thought, and obviously Fox news thought as well, because they posted it, that it was a balanced article about the benefits and drawbacks of feeding your child juice. And one of my sources who was a, you know, pro juice (laughs) organization, um, was not happy with the, with the final Uh. product, but we presented the, the research behind it. So um, yeah, it's definitely good for parents to to be critical thinkers and and look into what the source is and and really look at it from all sides. Absolutely. So let's move on to talking about marketing of. We talked a little bit about this before, but those seemingly healthy products, those with ha- health halos, foods like yogurts or or brands that are endorsed by someone who is perceived as healthy, like an athlete or a celebrity or uh, someone who's in the fitness or health and fitness wellness industry. Right. So, you know, all of that is very persuasive. I mean, of course, it, it sort of preys on the most admirable goal of parents, which is we want to feed our family healthy food. But then we're having trouble figuring out what is healthy. And then the industry jumps in to tell us this is healthy, or as you mentioned, will retain people who themselves kind of lend it a health halo, like an athlete or a fitness person. And all of that really does work. And, you know, I have in, in my book, I, I cite a study that, you know, parents are, that they will rate a product as healthier if it's endorsed by an athlete. You know, that's one very powerful way to do it. And again, all of these health halo claims or nutrition claims like, you know, contains whole grain or, you know, antioxidants or all of that stuff, it all works to lend a health halo. And the other thing that I found in in researching kid food is that, you know, products that are specifically marketed for infants, toddlers, young children have more health claims than than other products. So it's even more confusing um, for for parents of young kids. And, you know, I'm trying to remember the exact Michael Pollan quote, but it was something like, you know, if the product has a health claim, you know, maybe it's not that healthy. In other words, you know, the healthiest products don't come marketed with health claims. They're just there. Right, right. You know, the, the produce sitting in your in your produce <laughs> section doesn't have a health claim on it typically. And that's the stuff, of course, we should be we should be drawn to. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. So why don't we talk a little bit more about what needs to happen? What do you think needs to happen at a policy level for changes to be made? So I have a chapter in the book called Four Wishes, and it's just kind of like four broad policy areas that I would love us to focus on. And these are certainly not the only things we could or should do to fix our food system, but these are ones that, um, you know, focus on things I've raised in the book, problems I've discussed in the prior chapters. And so 
just to be, you know, kind of really top level, the four broad areas, number one would be addressing advertising of junk food to children. I mean, that we know that that is actually a driver of childhood obesity. We know that it actually shapes children's food preferences for the worse. And one thing we haven't talked about is just looking at advertising and marketing of foods and drinks makes all of us, including children, eat more typically. It's called priming. So, you know, for all of those reasons, ideally we would actually have a ban on the advertising and marketing of foods and drinks to kids, you know, under a certain age. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's a huge lift in this country for the reasons, you know, we've talked about, but I do talk about other countries that have done it. And I, that would be like a huge, huge and important policy change. Um, another broad area I talk about is fixing this claim game. You know, I, I get into the regs a little bit and talk about things we could tweak so that it would make it harder for companies to give you the impression, you know, that this box of kale chips is full of kale when really it's just like a dusting and you're really giving your kids potato chips, you know, like let's, yeah. let's try to close those loopholes so that parents can really rely on health claims. Cause there are companies out there actually giving you a healthy product, but it's very hard for us now to negotiate, you know, navigate between what's real and what isn't. Um, then I talk about some things we could be doing in the world of school food that could further improve school food. I mean, it's definitely gotten much, much better, but there, I think we've got a ways to go. Like we were just talking about with copycat snacks and things like that. So I just, I offer some proposals that could further improve school food. And then the last thing I talk about, this isn't so much policy, but just things that we could be doing to get kids themselves invested in their healthy eating and inoculated against marketing. Because I think you can change the environment as much as you can, but ultimately this does come down to our own individual choices. And so the more we can kind of sensitize kids to what's really going on, just like you were talking about, you know, with your kids in the supermarket, I think that is really important. So talking about things like taste education and cooking, you know, home ec, cooking education in schools and, um, you know, overtly teaching kids about how marketing works what's going on and how they're trying to hook you, that really can make a difference. There's studies that show it really does change kids' behavior. Um, so those are like the four broad areas that I talk about in the book. And again, there are obviously lots of other things we could be doing as well. Right. Yeah. And, you know, another trend, I'd say another category of food that's been cropping up in recent years that we'll be talking about on another podcast episode is these so-called healthy junk food brands. So there's been a lot of uh, brands coming out um, with, you know, chickpea snacks and, um, you know, healthy granola bars. And, you know, they have superfoods in them and tons of vegetables. Um, but that's kind of problematic, too, if you're if you're not if you don't read labels and look at what is actually in the product. Exactly. And and right. And, and I think you know, some of those products really are nutrient dense and tasty and, and worth buying and worth having in your pantry, you know, assuming you're fine with those kinds of snacks around, but, but a lot of them really are making these kind of hollow claims. And it's so hard right now to distinguish between the two. Um, I'm working on this initiative that involves people who, you know, companies that are, um, marketing infant and toddler food that are, that are rich in vegetables and they're up against this obstacle, which is that everyone can talk about the veggies in these products, but a lot of these companies are just 
providing literally like, you know, a dusting, a little bit that shows up at the bottom of the ingredient list. And they can still put a big picture of spinach on their packaging. <laughs> and, and that's just not a level playing field right now. Right, right. Okay, great. And so what can parents do to advocate for all of these changes, food, marketing and advertising, especially in schools and, and also be able to make healthy decisions for their kids about what foods are brought into their home and what foods kids can access? So starting with the advocacy question, I think, you know, it really depends on what, how much parents want to take on, you know? And so I actually have a chapter, which, which contains 14 rules for advocacy, parent advocacy. And, you know, some of these rules are kind of applicable across the board, no matter what you're trying to do. And some are more specific. So what I mean is, you know, if your goal is, is more, I don't want to say modest, because this is still really important, but like kind of more bounded, like I just want my soccer coach to tell all the parents to bring fruit and water and not junk. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you do that? What's the best way to approach that person? How do you do it tactfully? Would it be better to have other parents in your corner? Answer, yes. <laughs> you know, right. so there's there's that kind of advocacy. Then there's the big stuff. Like I I want to advocate for you know, changing the rules about advertising in my kid's school or, you know, things like that. And and so I try to kind of lay out how to approach these things. You know, if it's a really big opponent on the other side, like a corporation, maybe you want to have a petition and use the media to your advantage. But obviously those things aren't appropriate if it's a smaller kind of um, a more modest goal. So, so I give rules and, and, and advice and I share the stories of other advocates who've been successful. And I hope that all of that does help parents feel empowered because there are parents out there absolutely making a difference. Um, And then in terms of that question of, you know, how do we make healthy choices? You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not a dietitian and I don't want to demonize any one food or anything like that. But obviously the more you can keep the majority of the food in your house away from the ultra processed stuff at the end of that processing spectrum you know, the, the healthier the choices in your home are going to be like kids can choose between this and that, but none of them are going to be foods where you're like, Oh, I don't want her having that. Um, and so, you know, I talk about in an introductory note in the book, you know, this is what we mean by ultra processed food. These are the things to look for on an ingredient list. This is why they're of concern. Um, and then sort of within those boundaries, hopefully that helps parents make healthier choices. Yeah, I agree. We try to stick to mostly whole foods. And I write a lot about that on my blog. But of course, you know, they're kids and kids want treats. And you can't, it's also not realistic to completely feed your kids all whole foods all the time or, or anyone for that matter. So it is making choices. I think it big a big part of it is reading labels and trying to figure out really what are the ingredients that your kids should be eating and shouldn't be eating. Absolutely. Great. Well, Bettina, thank you so much for your time today. And please let us know where can listeners go for more information about these food issues and also about you and your work? Well, so um, not to sound like I'm plugging my book, but I will say, you know, after 10 years of blogging on the lunch tray, which is which is my blog, um, you know, I do feel like kid food is kind of my best summation of these issues. And the other thing that I'm really proud about in that book is the appendix, because I want to share with you every resource that I think is valuable to get you going in whatever direction you want to go, like helping your kid learn how to cook or advocacy resources or, you know, fixing my wellness policy in my district, you know, so, so I really tried to pack into that appendix, all kinds of resources to get you going. Um, and actually this is sort of a spoiler, but by the time you air this podcast, um, I, I'm going to close the lunch tray blog actually, 
And oh, I'm no. starting a Substack newsletter, which I'm really excited about. So okay. it's going to be kind of a new format. And I just want to share on a weekly basis, just the, the links of the week's news about kids and food and, and links related to school food and things that will help parents and just kind of a very readable, breezy rundown each week. And I'm going to launch that, I think this week or maybe next. So by the time people okay. hear this, it should be out there. That's great. And I will definitely include a link to your book and a link to your through sign up for your newsletter. Um, we'll, we'll definitely include all of that information there. Well, thank you so much, Bettina, for your time today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm Julie Revelant, and thank you for tuning into this episode of Food Issues. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review or share it with a friend. Also, be sure to sign up for my newsletter at julierevelant.com for exclusive updates and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.